Open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, if you would raise your hand, uh, the ushers will come down front and make sure that you get a copy. 1 Peter chapter 2. Lift your hand high. Sorry, I didn't look up the page number. I think it's 650-something. I'm not certain, but uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. You know, every once in a while, there's a story you hear on the news um, about somebody who is either homeless or a recluse or absolutely like a vagabond, and they die, and nobody knows they died, and when people go to investigate their life, they turn out to be filthy rich. A couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you heard the story about this guy in Carson City, Nevada. Um, he didn't have any friends and no family, and he lived by himself, didn't say hi to his neighbors very often. He was a hoarder. He had all the earmarkings of someone who didn't have much, but when they went through his house, in fact, he died uh, one month earlier, and they found him a month later. That tells you how unconnected he was. When they went through his house, they found over $7 million of gold and gold bars. Um, they found uh, gold coins. They, they found stocks of 165000 in cash, cold cash at twelve grand, and he lived just barely, barely by, uh, by a shoestring. Now, I use that story because it's an awesome spiritual illustration. Uh, as Christians, as people who have been redeemed by Christ, the Bible has a lot to say about who we are in Jesus, and yet a lot of believers, professing believers, walk around sort of like this guy spiritually. They have access to the kingdom, They have access to all the king provides, and yet they live more like slaves and and paupers than they do like redeemed people. Do you know what I'm saying? So there's so much that the Bible says about who we are, so much confidence that that those truths apply to a a believer's heart that most of us, if you're really to write out the story, you'd be like, well, they're, they're lonely, and they have doubts, and they're insecure, and they keep their secrets, and you, you can make your own list, things that you do that look more like somebody who doesn't believe in somebody who does believe. So it's a great illustration of how we have a tendency, in spite of what God's word says, in spite of what God says, in spite of the more real reality that we're royalty in Jesus, Christians have a tendency to walk around like it's not quite certain. And so this whole passage is really about, uh, that we're dealing with today, deals with our identity. And if you get who you are in Christ, radical things will take place in your life. Let me, just a real simple four-point outline, that Jesus is the foundation of our identity. There is always two reactions to Jesus. What does our new identity look like? And then ultimately live it out. Live out your new identity. It's all about that idea. Now just picture the audience again. Here is a suffering, struggling, persecuted, scattered church. My guess is they wonder if this is real or wonder if it's worth it. The persecution might be so great. Peter writes these words to kind of encourage and build up this church. If you get your perspective on who you are in Christ, then whatever the world does, whatever it thinks about Christ in you is so immature material compared to what Christ has already done for you. You understand? This is very important. Identity. If you, got a, if you just got enough pencil lead for one word, write down identity because that's what this whole thing is about, our identity in Christ. So let me, let me give you context and a little backup so we know where we are. Again, suffering scattered church, Peter reminds them of their new birth. 
what God has authored for them. And, and he describes it this way. It's a new birth that brings about this inexpressible joy, glorious joy. He reminds them that they have an inheritance that won't perish, spoil, or fade because it's anchored to the guarded nature of God. God guards our faith. He provides it. He gives us a gift, and he stands watch over that faith. And then in verse uh, 13 of chapter 1, he says, Therefore, all these wonderfully huge doctrines of who authors salvation for sinners and how God holds on to us as sinners, he says, therefore, there's a reaction to that truth. Prepare your minds for action. We're going to deal with that idea a little bit today in another phrase that Peter uses. But he says, if that's true, if that's what God has done for you, uh, Christian, then get ready. Prepare your minds for action. Be holy in your conduct, he says. Deal with your sin and consume, chapter 2, verse 2, consume the word of God. If you're going to deal with all the persecution pushback of the world against Jesus in you, then you need to be ready for that. And so Peter says, in essence, cut to the chase, live differently. And I want to remind you of what he says in verse 17 of chapter 1. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter says, live differently. Chapter 2, verse 3, he tells us why. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I love the way the NIV says it better. It says, because you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. The reason why you want to go live differently is it because you climb some kind of spiritual ladder and finally God goes, okay, you're good enough. The gospel says you're not good enough and that Jesus provided everything in spite of you, but because it's so true, so real, so transforming, and you've tasted and seen that it's good, Peter says, now go live differently in spite of the opposition. Do you understand? So now we're going to climb on the back of that whole first chapter and the beginning of chapter 2, and we're going to add to it. Live differently because of you, and this is the word I gave you, because of your identity. In fact, the first point of the outline is Jesus is the foundation. It's really important to understand that. Verse 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I love what Peter says here. The living stone has made us living stones. God has done something through Christ to us that has transformed our lives. And I want you to hang on some, some, some words here. He uses living stone. He uses um, the word cornerstone in verse 6. He words, uses the word uh, cornerstone again in verse 7, but the NIV uses it capstone. I'll describe why that, I think, adds a little bit of color to this. But he says, this living stone Jesus has transformed our lives into living lives so that we can be different and be holy. And he says to offer spiritual sacrifices, something radically different. So if you want to just think another way about who Jesus is, the foundation of our faith, just change the word, whatever you want to uh, use, just a vital stone. The reason why Peter uses things like cornerstone or capstone or living stone, because he's trying to talk about the preeminence. 
the standard of Jesus, the, the main part that he plays, the key that he is to our life. I used to work as a laborer in a laborer union in Chicago, and one particular year, I had the privilege of working with the bricklayers. And a laborer for bricklayers, all he does all day long is mix mortar, carry brick and block, and set up scaffold and keep them supplied. And I always remember watching the bricklayers set up for a wall or a building, and they would take such precise care in making certain the first corner block was in the right place, the right height, the right angle, because if it's not, the building's off kilter, there's no strength to the building, there is no, there's no compass to the structure. And they would take great care in doing that. So do you get the point? You realize why Peter uses the idea of cornerstone or capstone or living stone is because everything has to be tied to Jesus, the identity of our faith. If you're a suffering, struggling church and you don't understand where Jesus plays a role in your life, if you don't understand clearly and deeply the, the importance that he is, that he's the main subject in our life, then you're going to struggle. Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, finish it. You can do nothing. nothing. And that's Peter's point. Okay, so now just transfer your life to this struggling church, suffering, wondering if it's worth it. And he starts out by saying, if you don't get this particular strength, that this whole identity wrapped into the cornerstone of Jesus is how you can accomplish not just surviving persecution, but thriving and being the church in the midst of the persecution. Do you understand? So he's, he's really preeminenting, putting Christ out there as the, as the main thing. I love the, the phrase I think the NIV uses in verse 7 when he talks about the capstone. You know these archways that bricklayers make. You know they fall down. Gravity will bring them down except for one thing. There's that middle stone. It's called the capstone. It's where strength comes from. These odd shapes can stand because of one particular piece. Great word illustration, right? Jesus is that peace in our life. Everything would crash down. It would all fall apart if Jesus isn't center, if he isn't main, isn't the thrust of our life. Do you agree, church? Everything is anchored to him. He sets the standard. He squares our building. Another thing that Peter makes clear here regarding this this place or this word living stones is that this church thing is not about a building. I don't know what you said today, coming here today, but we're going to church or something like that. Peter, using this phrase, says he's built us into living stones. We're the church. We're the body of Christ. We're his bride. That he is doing something unique and special with us. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit as well. We are a church anchored in Christ. He's the cornerstone, amen? There are always two reactions to Jesus. This is the second point I want you to get. Look at verse six through eight. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Here's Peter's point, okay? Suffering church, you might be looking at this faith and wondering if it's worth it. Is it real? Why are people so reactive to this truth? Because you can't be indifferent about Jesus. That option isn't there. He has always split the world in two. 
He has always divided the believing, God-authored salvation of souls from those thinking that their own lives and their own behavior merit some kind of life everlasting. And, and Peter says to them, don't be confused by the reaction of the world. He has always been a dividing line. To some, right, to us, let's just pretend we're all in the same boat. To us who would say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Somewhere in time, I was lost and blind. I was doing my own thing. He opened my eyes to see that I was a sinner, one, the bad news, and the good news that Jesus provides a covering of righteousness that I don't earn. You know, we confess our sins and we repent of our sins and we believe the truth of Jesus, right? To us, he's the corner, To us, he's the capstone. He's the main thing. He squares the building. He's everything to us. He's the point. He's the subject. He's the main character. But to the rest of the world, they look at Jesus and they say, wait a minute. He claims to be the authority and he claims to be the definition of love. I want to define love. Love works better for me if people treat me well and then I might consider treating them back. But Jesus says, no, love your enemies. Wait a minute. I don't like that. Jesus says, listen, I'm the judge. I don't want to be judged. And who are you to judge me? Do you understand? Every time Jesus speaks, he divides. And and apart apart from the Holy Spirit doing a work in our life, we'd be on the outside looking in too, church. There isn't anything special about any person in the world who knows enough or does enough to have God just open um, up heaven for us. But the reality is, Apart from that work the Holy Spirit does in the heart of man, you're going to be out on the outside of that story looking at Jesus saying, he has no right to judge me. He has no authority over me. It's just not true. There's always been those two reactions. He has no example to love. I get to decide those things. The Bible says he's truth. I get to decide what's truth. And truth is whatever I feel it is. And I think there's as many truths as our people. And course, that's not an option. He's not a good teacher, church. He's not a moral leader. He is not a nice guy. He doesn't give us that option. He says he's God. He divides it right there. He says, I'm the one and only. I created you. I created everything. You worship me in spirit and truth. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't, he doesn't say things marginally. He says exclusively who he is. Do you understand why it divides? And you understand why Peter would write this to a suffering church? Just to encourage them. You don't be surprised by the world's reaction to Jesus in you. They don't get it. They can't possibly get it unless the Holy Spirit works in their life. And because of who Jesus claims to be, he's offensive. He's a problem. He's a stone people will trip over. Do you understand? Shake your head. Good, because that helps me. I can, I can see motion, not faces. <laughs> Right. So that's absolutely essential if you're going to respond to suffering or, or push back to Christ in you. He's God who sees our sin, who judges our sin, but gives grace freely for those who believe. Great story. So here we go. Jesus, the foundation of our new identity. There are two reactions to Jesus. And now Peter goes on to describe what that new identity looks like. Verse 5. We're going to back up a little bit and talk about living stones. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
First thing that Peter says is that we are living stones. In Christ, our new identity is that we're living stones. Now, I, uh, I never played team sports growing up. I wrestled. Now, we had a team, but it really didn't matter. Do you know what I'm saying? There were 12 guys, 12 weight classes, and we'd go out wearing the same uniform, but I had a great day if everyone lost and I won. You know my point? I didn't learn the connectivity of, of sharing that if I don't do my part and they don't do their part, nobody wins. You could go all the way and win a state title all by yourself. This illustration is that it's an ultimate team game when it comes to the church and how we interact with each other, how this plays together. Peter says to the church, don't scatter. God is building you into a living structure. He's building you into the church, his bride. He's making something special out of you to do his work. We get to play a key role in the kingdom of God. He brought us together to build something special, to participate, get this, in redemption. I was writing some vision statements this week, some philosophy statements. And I'm not a good writer, which probably means I'm not a good thinker. Don't judge me. Um, (laughs) But I was trying to write down this idea that there isn't a single person who's ever lived who's come to Christ who didn't say if someone tell them about Christ. Like they're not going to be saved by you just being a good person. It'll be interesting. It'll be curious. It'll be winsome. But somewhere, someday, you got to say, and it's Jesus. Jesus died for a sinner like me on a cross. And, and, uh, we get to tell that story. Every one of us who know Christ, when we walk around in our life and we work and do whatever we do, we have this wonderful privilege in certain circumstances that the Holy Spirit leads us to. I call them divine appointments and somebody's receptive to a conversation and you get to say, well, can I tell you? It's about Jesus. And there's, there's unbelievable supernatural power that's going on right there when the Holy Spirit takes this person this at one time offensive trip over can't get to God kind of person and opens eyes to be transformed forever. Same story that happened to me, didn't it happen to you? From dark to light. And we get to play in that game. We get to participate in redemption. Together, God is forming us into a living structure, his his church, his body. Peter goes on in verses nine and 10 and he just buries us with thoughts about who we are, our identity in Christ Let's look at them, uh, verses 9 and 10. But you, and if you're an underliner, you should just start underlining all these phrases of identity. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He starts out with saying we're, we are a chosen people. Uh, our world is obsessed with um, self-worth. There's all sorts of seminars and TV commercials and workout programs to make people feel good about themselves. Um, the problem is the source is themselves. Their worth comes from within. Uh, Christians, we don't have that, we don't have the luxury. We know too much <laughs> because we know what the Bible says. We know what our hearts are. We know when the Bible gets all done presenting us with the good news of Jesus, it starts with this horrible news of our issues. It's far worse than we ever feared. 
The Bible says we're bent like a tree in the wind. We are bent. Our inclination is towards sin. And all we can do is sin. In fact, the Bible says the best you can offer God is like filthy rags to him. There is such a severe problem with the human heart. It's broken and it's twisted. And yet, this is mind-blowing. God picked you. Not because of you. He didn't, he didn't use the advantage of being outside of time to look at your little life and go, oh, well, they're going to clean up their act a little bit later. I'll choose them. God, in spite of you, not because of you, for his own pleasure and his own glory, for his own reasons, um, made a move on us. So if you're a suffering people, and you're wanting some strength, some guts, some confidence in the midst of suffering because of Jesus, and for Peter to remind you that you are maybe not the, the choice of the world, but you're the choice of God Almighty. Do you think that kind of builds up, not, not arrogance, but confidence? Don't, it, it's, if you ever have anybody go, I'm chosen, then they don't get it. They're not saved. When you understand biblical terminology, Ephesians, when you understand what Peter's saying here about God's move towards sinners, you realize you were dead and out cold, and he raised you to new life, and your response is, I can't believe it. It's, it's like singing Amazing Grace, who saved a wretch like me. You can say it because it's true. And Peter says to the suffering church, God made the move brings confidence, not arrogance. If I'm chosen by God, then the plans that he has for my life cannot fail. And that the promise that he made to finish the work that he started cannot fail. So I might not pick the particulars of my story. I might not pick the different bumps along the road, but God is sovereign over them, just like he's sovereign over me, and I will not fail. Those things won't be thwarted at all because of God's power and sovereignty. So he moves on. We've got living stones, chosen people. Now he adds royal priesthood. Let me unpack the priesthood part of this. For these people, the Old Testament priests would have been understood as people who offer prayers for the people, who offer sacrifices for the people, who encourage the spiritual life of the church or of the, of the people of God who were set apart to serve. They were God's messengers. And God has called us, church, into the priesthood. In fact, the Bible says all those believers are priests. And so we have activities very similar to the priest. We offer prayers and we sacrifice daily in our own life. And we encourage others in the, in the things of God. In Christ, we are set apart to serve and we are God's messengers. In fact, the other parts of Scripture say that we are his ambassadors. That we represent him. We do what a priest would do. So that's the first calling. So church, suffering church, understand God has given you a role to play as priests, a messenger for this gospel in the world. But by the way, you're a royal priesthood. Let me unpack that a little bit. For Peter's audience, and probably ours here in America, royalty was absolutely beyond their thinking. Because in that culture, um, royalty was beyond anybody's natural abilities. Because you had to be born into royalty. You had to inherit it. So that's our story too, isn't it? The gospel finds all of us without the natural ability to be royal because we're sinners. God provides that royalty. He provides this royal priesthood as an inheritance. 
Sinners adopted into the king's family have access to all the king is and all the king provides. We're royal priesthood. So again, I keep saying this. If you're somehow wondering if, if you can endure it, my guess is you forgot who you are in Christ. And if God has provided to you all the riches of his kingdom as an adopted child of the king, what are you worried about? What are you stressed about? Now, I get it you don't know the story, but isn't that more about control than about confidence? Isn't that you preferring to be in a position in the catbird seat dictating the terms versus being okay with the one who knows what's best for you? And him controlling it, knowing what he said, well, it will finish like, you'll grow, he'll get glory, and I've provided all the riches of the heavens for you. So, in Christ, our identity is living stones, chosen people, a royal priesthood. He says also in verse 10, a holy nation. It literally means to be a separate people, to be set up part. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. There, and we've done this so many times, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but there is a two-angle perspective on this holy provision. There is the positional holiness secured in the righteous robes of Christ that covers sinners, that God simply applies righteousness from Jesus to everyone who believes, and we stand before God as holy as we ever will be. That's positional holiness. But there's this practical, progressive, sanctifying holiness that we're all under. I had a joke going with Greg Scurray last hour saying, I measure people's progression spiritually by how close they sit to the front. Pretty good for you, Norm. You're doing well. <laughs> I was kidding, of course. But there is a reality in journeying with Christ. That God starts a work and he's faithful to finish the work, right? And every day and year you live, you are transformed progressively, right? So hopefully you look back at your life and go, man, I used to do that. Just think about that. I used to spend my money on that. I used to be angry about that. And you can look back at it now and go, oh, look, well, that one's gone or getting better. And this one's, I don't even remember that guy anymore. And God is moving you down the line of progressive, sanctifying holiness. You understand? So Peter reminds this church, and I, I only speculate a little bit. If I was one of this group of Christians in the midst of opposition, based on my personality, I'd probably push back a little bit. Peter says, you don't have to push back. God is transforming you in holiness. He's already made you positionally holy, and he's transforming you over time. And you can... Turn the other cheek. You can love your enemy. You can be that person because God is committed to it. You're a holy nation. There's a, another thing that he talks about here in verse 10. He says that we're a people belonging to God. We're valuable. And because of that, we have privileges and we have access because of who our father is. In 1978 um, or 79, I think it was, Jimmy Carter was running for president second term, and uh, my best friend was the son of a senator, and Walter Mondale was in town doing a lawn party, and I got invited, and I was sitting at the shrimp bar with uh, Walter Mondale, 
And I was telling somebody earlier, how did that happen? Well, I don't know. They never frisked me. I never had anybody ask me questions. I was just the knucklehead at the shrimp bar eating with the vice president of the United States. Now, the only reason I was there wasn't because I was smart or politically inclined. I knew somebody, right? It's the only reason I was there. So church, think about it. When God says you belong to him, you can go places. You have access. There's power in that. Who you know, like who's your daddy for real, says volumes. You have privileges and access to the Father. So living stones, chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people belong to God. One last one. Verse 10 says we're, we have, we're recipients of mercy. Recipients of mercy. Last part of verse 10 says, but once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Before you can really ever appreciate what you've been given, you have to appreciate what you deserve. Agreed? The Bible says in Romans chapter 6 that we're all sinners and the wages of that sin is death. That's what we deserve. The sin against God is so far more grievous than I can communicate or feel. It is so bad that God has to separate himself from sinners, not just by death, but eternity and suffering. Someone once said about this, that if life was like a job and the day of judgment was payday, our salary would be eternal punishment. It's what you earn. It's what I earn. It's horrible, horrible, but... We don't get judgment. We don't get what we deserve. We get mercy. Webster's Dictionary says this, that it's compassion shown to the offender. Well, that's my experience. I know me. I will never tell you. (laughs) I know me. I know my struggles. I know my weaknesses and my failures. I know my bent. God knows my bent. And he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Amen? Say it louder because you believe it. Amen? Yeah, it's mercy. So, to a suffering, struggling church, Peter tells them the foundation of their new identity is Jesus. Don't freak out, church, because every time Jesus shows up, it divides the story. Here's your identity in Christ. But one last thing, it's the so what. Sometimes I struggle with writing a response to a message. Well, Peter did it for us here in verses 11 and 12. Here's the so what. Live out your identity. Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Have you ever heard of the KISS principle? And this doesn't have anything to do with the band. Keep it simple, stupid. Keep it simple, stupid. That's exactly what Peter's doing here. Sometimes we like to think that the the way in which God works in our life, the so what to it, it's really complicated, needs an outline and a couple of major libraries to get it done. Here's all Peter says. When it comes to your sin, you ready? Stop it. Stop it. Abstain from it. Now, it's not just, hey, on your own, muster up strength to quit sin. He's saying based on the power of God working in you, the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you now have the ability you never had before, so abstain from the evil desires. Let me just overwhelm you with what Paul says those things look like. 
Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealous, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and, and things like this. Everybody find their topic? <laughs> I found a couple of mine. And, and Peter says, abstain. There's no excuses anymore, church. God gave everything to transform your life, indwell your life, empower your life. Now go abstain. Is it a perfect thing? No. It's a war thing, and we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. Why? Peter gives us reasons why we should abstain. Here's the first one, because we're aliens and strangers. We're exiles. Now, think about it for a second. What if we legitimately thought of this like we don't belong here? Like we have an address and a home somewhere else, and there's a king in our land, and this king sent us on a mission to another foreign land. Now, just think about it that way, and think about it what it's like to live as aliens and strangers in a world like this that we're living in now. Well, as Christian aliens and strangers, we would have a different focus, wouldn't we? We'd have different values and different goals in our life. We'd know we were here on business. We were practicing our homeland's customs called holiness. We are committed to the king's agenda because he sent us, and so we've got a job to do. You get it? So when you think that you don't belong here, when you think this is not your home, maybe, maybe when things kind of dissipate, that you used to find hope in, you're not going to go, ugh because you have a clearer perspective. You're, you're, you're an alien and stranger here. You belong to the king. He gives us another reason why we should abstain from this in verse 11. Watch this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Here's a real practical reason. Here's a practical reason to abstain because these sins are at war with you. That word war, this is the way it's rendered, a long-term military campaign. Sometimes I think we mistake ourselves thinking that these little moments of failure or, or disagreements are just what they feel like, short blurps. Very few of us get up in the morning, put our feet on the floor and say, it's a battle today. It's a battle every day. Everything's going to feel like a fight. That's one of the things I love about the, the Bible. It isn't hiding behind that struggle. When it uses buffet your body, when, it's, when Paul says that, when he says it's a fight, it's like a boxing match, he is trying to tell you how it will feel in the fight. I've never been in a fight I didn't know. Didn't feel like a fight. And, by the way, when you recognize you're in a war, you can prepare yourself for it, can't you? I told this the last hour. I didn't plan on saying it, and somebody came up and wanted the whole story. I'm not going to give the whole story, but uh, this was way back in the 70s, and I was cleaning my car one afternoon, one night. It was dark out, and a car pulled up and blocked the driveway. Windows were down, and I kept getting closer. What's going on? What's going on? And the guy wouldn't respond to me, and I stick my head in the window, and boom, right across the chops. Now, if I would have known... He was going to hit me. Do you think I would have got close and put my head in the window? <laughs> now, you might say, well, you're stupid, Tim. Of course you would. I wouldn't have. I'd probably taken a club and gone into the window. 
I'm using that to describe if you really understand you're in a fight and a war, an ongoing long-term military campaign that won't end until Jesus comes back, do you think you'll prepare yourself for the battle? Need some time? These are, these are easy questions. Yes, you'll prepare yourself for it. It's never going to be easy. You're always having to be ready. So I wrote down this. How do you fight? How do you fight? Okay, I, bu- I buy it. I buy it that I need to be ready. How do I do that? And by the way, I'm going to say this. I know we have an adversary, but most of what I'm talking about is the fight between the flesh and the soul. James says that you can't blame God when you fall, when you're tempted because you're drug away and enticed by your own evil desire. You drag that flesh around with you, and it's the one doing all the dictating. So how do you fight? I'm going to ask you one question. Who do you feed? If you spend your time on you and your flesh and your stuff and your lust and your passions, then when temptation comes, I know who will do the talking. Your flesh will, but if you say no to ungodliness and sin and spend time with your Savior, temptation will come because the battle doesn't end, but when it does, more than likely, your soul will do the talking. Who do you feed? Do you understand? And it's not like, it's not like complicated. Every time I spend time with Jesus, I can spot sin quicker. And every time I spend time with Jesus, I hate it more. That's how you abstain. Not because I'm going to be more saved or God's going to love me more. There's power in knowing that Jesus is better. Amen? Well, that's, that's true. So that's how you fight. Peter says to live out your identity by abstaining from sinful desires, one. But he finishes in verse 12 by saying, walk the talk. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I like the way the NIV reads it. It says, live such good lives among the pagans, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. Live such good lives. Have your life match your confession. You're sitting in church today, and you're praising God, and you're singing songs, and you're taking communion, and you're listening to this fool talk, and you leave here, and you go live a way that doesn't match that. Then then Peter says, well, you're not going to have strength in circumstances. Walk the talk. Peter's audience was under some serious pressure. As Christians in that day, they were accused of of, um, hating the Gentiles. They were accused of cannibalism. When they would talk about the Lord's Supper, the words they would use caused the Gentiles to look at them and say, they're eating each other over there. They called their meetings love meetings, and so they accused them of incest and orgies. Um, They accused them of bad business practices and unfair uh, relationships. They they accused them of breaking up families because Jesus says he's greater than moms and dads and kids and sons, right? He he accuses, they're they're accused of being disloyal to to Caesar. They were accused of everything. And so in the midst of that, people were lying about their intentions and their actions. And Peter says, listen, here's how you fix that. Stop sinning and have your life match your confession. Let your life tell the truth. They will accuse you of stuff, but let your life tell the truth. So when you love those rejected by the world, they will notice. When you forgive people who offend you or hurt you or sin against you, they will notice. When you have joy 
inexpressible, in the midst of suffering and hatred, they're going to notice. When you give sacrificially, absolutely convinced that God is your provision, not you, they'll notice. When you're content with what you have and don't hoard what you don't need, they will notice. When, when you serve open-handedly with nothing in return, when you repent of your sins, nothing in the world looks like that except Jesus. Do you understand? And they'll notice. Someday you'll have to tell them it's Jesus. But Peter says, when, when we do that, some critics will become brothers and some God-cursers will become praisers when we live like that out loud. I'm going to finish with just two words and it's the why to that statement. Why will they become praisers? It's two words if you're a circler. So that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see, there's one word, your good works, there's the other word, and glorify God on the day of visitation. The word see really has the idea of careful watching over a long period of time. So if you get what I'm saying to you today and you run out of here in like, fired up passion, great. But what Peter says will have an effect on the world who is accusing you and hating your Jesus isn't your little hyperactive moments. It's long-term obedience. It's living like Jesus is your king from here on out. Get it? Over a long period of time. And then the good deeds. A uh, good word means winsome and attractive. To the world watching, your God-like behavior to them looks really good. They don't have an answer for it. They don't know it's Jesus. They don't know it's power and Holy Spirit. But to them, it looks awesome. And sometimes if you're a suffering church and you're living out your faith, you're convinced that they hate everything about it. No, they don't. They're looking for peace too. They just don't know where to find it. They're looking for hope. They're looking for contentment. They don't know where to get it. And you do. And so Peter says to a suffering, struggling church, the salvation you have in God is so awesome, right, that you're going to have a tendency at times when the pressure comes or the cost is too great that you're going to want to wonder if it's worth it or wonder if you're going to maintain the strength in it. And God said, well, you will. You're going to maintain the strength. Christ is the foundation of that identity. Don't freak out when the world divides over Jesus. Here's what Jesus has provided you in a royal priesthood, a holy nation, belonging to God, possession of God receiving mercy, now go live it out. Live out that identity. It's more real than what you see. Do you believe that, church? Let's pray for that, will we? We need your help, God, to, uh, to remember these truths we confess. We need your help, God, to uh, believe in the midst of difficulties or circumstances uh, like struggle or suffering or persecution, that your reality is greater than the one we're going through. God, I pray for the people here in the chapel, in the conference center. I don't know their story particularly, but my guess is they've applied already what it's like for them to suffer. God, whatever their story is, let Jesus be the foundation. Let him be the footing. Let him be the main subject. God, let them be anchored to what Jesus has provided and said over all of us who know Christ. God, give us the strength to step up every day, put our feet on the floor, knowing there's a fight, but if we trust you and love you, that will speak a better word. God, we love you. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.